If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In October 1773, seven ships departed from England, carrying nearly £600,000 of the East India Company's tea that was destined for the American colonies. Following the Tea Act, which had been passed by the Parliament of Great Britain earlier that year, the tea would only be sold to the East India Company's own agents in the colonies in an attempt to monopolise the tea market. As these ships made their way across the Atlantic, a storm was brewing, one with tea at its centre. Welcome to episode three of Boston Tea Party, Igniting a Revolution. I'm your host, Eleanor Evans, and this episode, we'll look at how, in the wake of the Tea Act, tensions in the colony of Massachusetts rose to breaking point. We'll hear from experts on the climactic moments before the infamous destruction of the tea, and delve deeper into the seismic events of the 16th of December, 1773. First, let's revisit a familiar figure from earlier episodes, Governor Thomas Hutchinson. Here's Professor of History and author Sarah Purcell with a reminder for us. 
Thomas Hutchinson, who I talked about when his home was destroyed around the time of the Stamp Act, back then in the 1760s, he was lieutenant governor. But at the time of the Tea Act, he was actually the royal governor of Massachusetts. So he had ascended in power and he was invested with quite a lot of authority. And he was the one who had the authority from the crown to enforce the Tea Act. Interestingly, Hutchinson also had economic interests in the tea trade, and two of his sons were directly involved as tea merchants. So he was not just a dispassionate royal official. He was a man of the colony who also, as a rich merchant, was involved in this trade himself. And so he was, um, as you say, very loyal, very intent on carrying out these acts as the royal governor. He also had come, again, just around the time of the Tea Act, into very direct conflict with the Sons of Liberty and with Samuel Adams, who had gotten a hold of some private letters that Hutchinson had sent to Britain, and in which he had said it might be necessary to crack down even harder on Boston and on Massachusetts and to kind of curtail liberty in the colonies. And Adams published those letters publicly, and so Hutchinson was basically branded as a budding authoritarian, that he was going to literally directly abridge British liberties. But he was doing his job, and there were other merchants who were hoping to import the tea. The Tea Act actually lowered the price of tea, and so they hoped that they would be able to compete with the price of smuggled tea, and that the Act might actually reduce the smuggling of illegal products. And the merchants who were identified to bring in the this tea in 1773, they were also given basically a monopoly by the Tea Act because they were chosen by the British East India Company to be the particular factors importing this tea. So basically the merchant class and the particular merchants who were still willing to engage in the tea trade, they had links with the government and they were hoping it was actually going to be profitable and it might actually work at tamping down the objections because people loved tea and it was going to make tea cheaper. Despite this lowering of prices and the optimism of those imposing the tax, tea proved to be an incendiary issue. In Boston, the stage was set for a standoff between those loyal to the British Parliament and those who saw the rising taxes as an assault on their liberties. We heard plenty last episode on the Sons of Liberty, their organisation against the taxes and the often intimidating tactics they employed. Here's Sarah on the picture in Boston, and the involvement of the Sons of Liberty on a local level. There is overlap between the Sons of Liberty and someone like Samuel Adams, overlap between their organizing of resistance and their participation in local government. So Samuel Adams had been a member of the elected legislature of Massachusetts, the local control that I talked about, and he was an elected leader of the Boston Town Meeting. And the Town Meeting was another one of these local organizations. It was the very local city government, basically, of Boston along with other leaders. And so Adams and other Sons of Liberty were involved in the town meeting. The town meeting is something that ran under, still runs in some places, under a kind of theory of direct representation. So kind of the radical opposite of what they were complaining about with the British Parliament. So that all of the eligible males who were seen as political beings in the community could come together. And there were elected leaders, but really 
really there might even be hundreds or, or sometimes more than that people coming together in meetings. So the town meeting is both a wider meeting and an elected body of representatives. And so the Sons of Liberty and Samuel Adams was the chair of the town meeting. And so the Boston city government starts to protest against the T-Act. The Sons of Liberty are organizing resistance and they start to have not just the town meeting, which is the official city government, but something that they called a meeting of the body of the people. So it was kind of like a super added town meeting plus. And so the Sons of Liberty, who had really taken a hand in helping to govern the city of Boston, while also organizing privately to oppose the taxes and worked through newspapers and corresponding with other colonies, and also in this cross-class alliance, and even mobilizing women's resistance through newspaper pieces and songs and encouraging women to boycott tea and other products. They then feed that into very large public meetings. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/historyextra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. And what about on a personal level? I asked Sarah whether there were any other factors that were playing into this rising sense of resentment. It's definitely personal. A lot of the Sons of Liberty, the sort of man in the street, if you will, the men and the women who had supported the resistance movement, they did not like Hutchinson. Hutchinson was quite a haughty man. He was, again, very, very clear about supporting royal privilege. And he is probably the strongest example of one of these people that I said 
you know, they saw themselves as British. He very much saw himself as an arm of the British government in Boston, in Massachusetts. And so he took that very seriously, but he was also, you know, a wealthy guy from the vicinity and he was really hated. And so if you think about the fact that his home had been destroyed by protesters almost 10 years before this, and then he had been given more power and had also increased his economic success and was, was really intensely involved. And then on the other side, you have someone like Samuel Adams, who the historian Pauline Mayer said he was never particularly interested in earning money. Now, that was easy because he was from a rich family, but he was not very successful in business, but he was very successful in politics and in political organizing. And he didn't necessarily care for wealth personally, again, although he did possess family wealth. And so he was willing to make this kind of coalition with the middling sort and with working men. And they were not fond of the Thomas Hutchinson's, the merchant class, but also not fond of Hutchinson personally. And so really, if you had to pick a figure to enforce the Tea Act, who could incite the most odious personal reaction, Thomas Hutchinson would have been him just choosing that. So it's kind of like I said, tea as a product was was infused with the maximum meaning to kind of get the maximum reaction. So was Thomas Hutchinson as the royal governor. At that point, what happens in um, several different colonies, not just in Massachusetts, but the actual ships bearing tea, the tea that is subject to the Tea Act, subject to the monopoly control by the British East India Company, those ships start to arrive in the colonies. And in every other colony where they arrive, New York, South Carolina, the governors, the royal officials, they do various things. They offload the tea, they stick it in a warehouse or they convince the ships to turn around. They basically manage the conflict and they figure out a way to not wave sort of provocation in the face of the crowd because they realize because of the rising meetings and the publications and the newspapers and all of the cultural noise and political protest that people in these cities are not going to stand for it. But what happens is, this is where Thomas Hutchinson's personality and his governance style enter. He was absolutely bent on having those ships come into the port of Boston and unloading the tea and putting that tea up for sale. And he could see that, again, there were accelerating both town meetings and several meetings of the body of people starting in November and going into December. But as the three ships, initially there were four, but one of them had to turn around because of a storm. The three ships carrying the tea come into Boston Harbor and they are just sitting in the harbor with the tea, just kind of simmering there with freighted with all its symbolic significance. And he keeps announcing basically that the tea will be unloaded and it will be put for sale. Okay, so Hutchinson is like bound and determined and he does not use any of the diversionary tactics that British governing officials in other colonies used. On the 28th of November, 1773, the Dartmouth was the first tea ship to arrive in Boston, commanded by Captain James Hall. It was followed by the Eleanor and the Beaver in early December. I wanted to hear more about the pressure that was being applied by Bostonians towards these three ships and the acts of resistance in the lead up to our pivotal event on the 16th of December. Here's professor and author Benjamin Karp to take us closer. 
Well, so when the Bostonians hear that there is a shipment of tea coming to their town, and New York and Philadelphia and Charleston too, when these cities realize, okay, ships bearing tea are coming to our town, what are we going to do about it? Well, if we know who the merchants are that have been picked to receive the tea, we can pressure them to say, resign your commission, say that you're not going to receive the tea, that way there will be no one to receive it and maybe it will have to go back to London. Then when the tea ships arrive, they say, okay, let's pressure the captains. Hey, turn your ship around with the tea on board. We know that that's technically illegal, but we need you to do that. And they say, well, wait, but then customs officials or the governor are going to stop me and my ship will be seized and I'll be ruined. So then they say, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll try and pressure these customs officers or the governor and say, hey, you've got to look the other way and allow these tea ships to return. So those are the pressure points. And they, they use a lot of very intimidating tactics, particularly in Boston against the Consonese. And the Consonese included two of Governor Hutchinson's sons and another firm called Richard Clark and Sons, which were related to the Hutchinsons by marriage. And so it's this very small group of merchant firms that have been tasked with receiving the tea. What the Bostonians do, what William Molyneux and some of these other Boston Sons of Liberty begin doing is pressuring those Consonese saying, you, you know, you can't uh, allow this tea to land. This becomes the pressure point. And one of the things that the Bostonians do is they say, okay, we're not going to meet as an official town meeting. The selectmen are going to have nothing to say about this. The town meeting is going to retire for now, and it'll meet next year to talk about various town offices and surveyors of weights and measures and, you know, whatever, right? The body that is going to gather is going to be called the body of the people. And it, it ends up meeting at the Old South Meeting House because that is the biggest building in town. It will include not just Bostonians and not just full-fledged members of the town, but also people from outlying towns, people who were not necessarily voters. They were all welcome to come to this just general body of the people, right? Not anything that's officially constituted, but just a gathering of like-minded people, thousands of them, that really want the tea not to be landed and are launching various official kinds of protests and coming up with letters to present to the consignees to say, hey, please resign your commissions, etc. So it's a series of meetings that happen in November and December of 1773, after the tea ships have arrived, in order to do something about these tea shipments. And so can you take us inside any of these meetings? What's the sort of tone of them? Are they angry? Are they measured? Are they a bit of both? Uh, there's a bit of both. I mean, any large meeting of that kind is going to be unruly and swayed by certain kinds of oration, etc., etc. But they tried to be orderly gatherings. The leaders of them wanted them to be orderly gatherings because here it is, right? Like the subject of these surrounding communities spontaneously gathering and coming up with a what they see as a measured response. Sure, they're going to delegate some actions to bodies of people that are going to formally approach the consignees. And then when those meetings don't work out, there are going to be street protests, but those are happening separately from the meetings themselves. The meeting themselves are happening in meeting houses, places of worship. And so they're meant to be somewhat more orderly, but behind the scenes, right, there are clearly some coordinated actions that are pursuing tactics of violence and intimidation against the consignees and then later the ship captains and customs officials, etc. Right. And the ship's owners, I forgot to mention them as well. Can you take us inside some of these acts of intimidation? 
you know, on the night that Jonathan Clark comes to Boston and he's so excited because he's received this lucrative trade commission for his family firm. That night, a crowd approaches their home, you know, in order to kind of demand that the consignees resign their commission. And somebody fires a gun out of the window. And luckily, no one was was hurt. And eventually the crowd stands down. But again, right, like the consignees are feeling a tremendous amount of pressure. They're being pressured at both their warehouse and their home to resign their commissions. And then the ship's captains, what sort of pressure are they put under when they eventually dock? The ship captains are mostly aboard ship and not too much is happening to them, although Bostonians are patrolling the wharves in order to make sure that no tea is landed. Some of the men that are brought before the meeting, though, are the owners of these ships, right? The ones who actually made the decisions about where these captains should sail. So the one who becomes really the focal point is Francis Roach. He's 23 years old. He represents a whale oil merchant family. His interest is really, oh gosh, right? Like, okay, my ship, the Dartmouth, has come in. What I really want to do is just unload all of its cars cargo, load it with whale oil and send it back to London because that's really where we make most of our money. So he feels kind of caught up in this, right? His older relatives are, uh, you know, in New Bedford or, or Nantucket or whatever, you know, so he's the one in charge of dealing with this. And so he has to stand before this meeting and be like, guys, what can I do? If I order my ship to turn around with the tea still aboard, my ship will be seized and I'll be ruined. So you know, eventually the Bostonians are running out of time because there's a 20-day deadline after a ship arrives in harbor, after which it has to unload its commodities, its dutiable commodities, or the ship will be seized by the British Navy or customs officials, and then its cargo will be sold at auction. So that's bad for everybody. So on December 16th, the Bostonians say to Francis Roach, all right, you've got one more chance. Why don't you go talk to Governor Hutchinson, ask him to look the other way, allow you to send your tea back to London, and then maybe that will solve the problem. So he, he goes seven miles to Milton, Massachusetts, it's where Governor Hutchinson has his country estate. And he asks Governor Hutchinson, and Hutchinson's like, no, I can't do that. It'll be fine, right? They're not going to do anything. This will all work out somehow, and don't worry about this. So he goes back to Boston. He gathers before this large meeting at 3 p.m. at the Old South Meeting House, and he says, look, the governor wasn't willing to look the other way. There's not really much I can do. I can't turn the tea around, and you guys won't let me land it. And so then the leaders of the Boston meeting, they say, it's all right, Francis Roach. You did all you could. We hold you blameless from here on out. And then a few moments later, you know, Samuel Adams says, there's nothing more than that this meeting can do to save the country. And then a few minutes later, you start to hear war whoops from, I believe, the western end of the meeting house. Indian war cries, people shouting, Boston Harbor, a teapot tonight. Hurrah for Griffin's Wharf, right? All these shouts. And then the crowd begins milling about and being like, oh, all right, clearly the action is happening now at Griffin's Wharf. Most of the crowd begins exiting the, the, the meeting house and walking down to Griffin's Wharf following these guys in Indian disguise who are whooping and saying hurrah for Griffin's Wharf. The leaders of the meeting, like Adams, like Hancock, like Warren, they ostentatiously stay behind, actually, at the head of the meeting, say, no, no, we have more speeches about the unconstitutionality of this. You know, clearly they didn't want to be perceived as leading this crowd down to Griffin's Wharf. So they stay at the Old South Meeting House, but a large group of people go down to Griffin's Wharf. Most of them just hang out on the wharves and docks, witnessing what's about to happen. But a group of 100 or maybe 150, maybe even as many as 200 men, they split into three parties, subset of them board the ships, another group of them guard the wharves to make sure that there's no interference with what's about to happen. And over the next two or three hours, these three groups of men unload 340 chests of tea, chop them up, and dump the contents into the harbor. Uh, and there's, there's lots more that I can say about what unfolds, uh, but this is the destruction of the tea, the big act. The Bostonians felt that they had no other choice. If the tea couldn't be sent back to London, 
they definitely didn't want it to land. In part, it's because they're feeling pressure from those Sons of Liberty in New York and Philadelphia that they are going to hold up their end and not allow the tea to land. And so again, if this tea is about to be seized by British customs officials the next day, something has to be done. The tea's got to go. And so they say, all right, this isn't going to be violent. This isn't going to be outright mayhem. This isn't going to be theft. We're not going to damage any other property or the ships themselves. We're going to try not to hurt anybody, but we are going to make sure that every leaf of that tea cannot be consumed, cannot be taxed. We're going to just dump it into Boston Harbor. What happened next has since been enshrined in the mythology of the colony's independence struggle. And 250 years on, remains a key milestone in the story of the American Revolution. But how much is really known about the events of that night? I mean, this is so tricky, right? I mean, if you've ever watched The Wire, right, you don't take notes on a criminal conspiracy. So there's really nothing for historians to consult about the planning of this. All we can do is look at who was said to have participated and what some of those men said in their old age about here's how it all went down. Because the interesting thing is... These men swore one another for secrecy and appear to have largely kept that secret for 50 years. So many of the people who participated in the Tea Party had probably died during that intervening time. And so we don't have a complete picture of who might have participated in this event. What we know is that the majority of them seem to have been born in Boston. The majority of them were also between the ages of 18 and 29, although there's some reason for bias there. And more than a third of them were probably under 21. So you've got a strong proportion of young men, but also some established middle-aged men. A couple of them were college graduates. A lot of them were kind of middle-class artisans and shopkeeper. And a number of them were working-class apprentices and even boys who participated in this event. Now, one thing we don't know is, was it wealthy merchants who gathered these guys together, picked some trusted men that they had worked with, who they had employed, and said, here's where you're going to be, right? On this date, you are going to be ready to dump the tea if all goes the way we're worried that it's going to go. Or, Was it working class Bostonians feeling the grievance of what was happening and gathering of their own accord to say, you know, we are going to take this action if the more elite measures don't pan out? And there's evidence of both of those things being true, both merchants, wealthy merchants and politicians calling these guys together, but also working class Bostonians meeting on their own and then actually asking a wealthy merchant, hey, could you lead us? And that wealthy merchant saying, well, no, I can't tell you anything directly, but if you show up on December 16th, you will find friends. So very interesting, this idea that it could have been led from the top down or it could have been led from the bottom up. I find that to be really fascinating. Many of these men later said, you know, I was a young man. I was fired with resentment about the Tea Act. I understood that landing the tea was going to be a terrible idea. And so I was part of this group who boldly went on board these ships. You know, I never worked harder in my life than when I was swinging these axes and and hoisting the block and tackle and, you know, bringing these crates on board the ship. You know, there may have been an element of fun to it. One of the funny things about the Boston Tea Party is that when it happened, the tide was out. And so the water line was actually quite low. And once 46 tons of tea get dumped over the side of these boats, it begins to clump up above the water line. And so they actually have to send a number of apprentice boys out in a boat to be like, take some oars and whack at these piles so that it'll actually dissolve in the water and flow out to sea. So there may have been an element of merriment to it. But some other other people say, oh, that all the, the thousands of spectators that were on the wharf 
you know, maintained a respectful silence as we did this. You know, the men on board these ships tried to remain orderly. They accidentally broke a lock. And so then they came forward and immediately replaced it. They deliberately didn't touch any of the other goods aboard the beaver because the beaver hadn't been unloaded otherwise. And so they're like, all right, we're not touching anything except the tea, but every bit of this tea is going to be destroyed. There was a, a little bit of violence, uh, some of it accidental, right? Like a hoist collapsed and uh, somebody got knocked out. But the other thing is one guy, a, a horse trader named Charles Connor, was caught pocketing tea. And so they ripped the guy's coat off and they beat him up and they hang his coat with a sign at his in front of his house to set an example, right? Like, we're not here to pocket this tea. We're not here out of selfish reasons. We are here to destroy this tea in order to object against the Tea Act and the duty from the Townsend Acts that these guys are trying to enforce. So the night of the tea party is really fascinating. And then there are all these stories of these guys coming home and some of the women saying, hey, did you bring me any of it? Or, you know, or one guy says, oh, there's still all this tea in my boots and so he throws it into the fire so that he's not looked at as a thief. Uh, and so these stories are passed down, but some of these stories are a little shadowy, and some of them are told a little bit later, and we have to be suspicious of some of them, like, oh, are these old wives' tales and old husbands' tales, you know, uh, that get passed along? Which of these stories that are later told in the 1820s, 1830s, that were accurate representations of what had happened that night? How many people were stepping forward and being like, oh, yeah, I was there, you know, in a way that was completely false? It was very dramatic, but it also was not super long-lasting, and it was very targeted at just destroying the tea. Not a lot else happened, but it was incredibly dramatic in terms of symbolic value and economic protest, and then the reaction that it gets is, is equally, if not more, dramatic. Before we go any further with the reaction, I wanted to pick up on the disguises used by the destroyers of the tea that night. Here's Benjamin. There's so much that we can say about these Indian disguises, sometimes described as Mohawk disguises. We have to be sensitive about this because, of course, this is white men dressing up as indigenous people, something that was done throughout American history and is still being done occasionally today and is quite offensive to indigenous people nowadays. But it's clearly part of the protest. Some people had very elaborate disguises that they had clearly planned beforehand. They speak with one another in a mock Indian dialect. It's clear that it was the leaders on board these ships who had the most elaborate disguises. Other men and boys joined the Tea Party spontaneously, and so they had hastier disguises where they darkened their faces with soot or lamp black and just kind of wrapped a blanket around their shoulders and said, okay, I'm an Indian now. So again, there's various levels of disguises, but the real question is, why did they do this? And uh, Phil Deloria, a scholar at Harvard, had some great answers to this in his book, Playing Indian. I have some speculation as well. Why choose an Indian identity? Why choose a Mohawk identity? I mean, one thing that's clear is that, first of all, no one is fooled by these disguises. In a town of 16,000, where fewer than a quarter of those people were adult men, everybody knew who these guys were, right? The disguises are meant to kind of say, no one who's witnessing this had better tell, right? Like everybody else in the crowd has to maintain this secret as well. We are not looking to be prosecuted, right? And so even though you know who we are, right, we are going to enforce a kind of cone of silence around this event. That's the reason for the disguises. But why Indian disguises? I mean, no one thought that these were actual Indians, right, you know, journeying uh, across several miles in order to perform this act. The disguises are symbolic, right? Indians are fearsome. Indians refuse to be bossed around. Indians are great warriors. They are independent-minded. They want to be autonomous. Let us, as white men, appropriate that attitude for ourselves. Let us send the message that we are not Europeans. 
we are something else. We do not represent the corruption that has clearly taken over London. We represent something purer and freer here in the wilds of North America. Now, they don't want to be mistaken for actual Native Americans. They do not see themselves as savage, which is the way they regarded a lot of indigenous people at the time, unfortunately. So the disguise means that you get to have the best of both worlds. You are more civilized than the Indians, but you are less corrupt than Europeans. It's something new. It's being an American. So that's really, I think, to some degree, what these disguises are supposed to represent. The idea of them being Mohawks specifically may have come from a New York newspaper article protesting the Tea Act. But really, like, the Mohawks were well-known throughout New England history. They had been allies at some point. They had been adversaries. They were known among the generations of people from Massachusetts. And so again, right, like, if we're going to think of the scariest bunch of tough guys that we can, we're going to think of Mohawks and we're going to appropriate this disguise for ourselves. So those are the events. They're pretty stark. They're endlessly fascinating. How long does it take for word to break, both in New England in the 13 colonies and and then across the Atlantic as well? How quickly do, do people know about this? I mean, as fast as news can travel, Paul Revere is dispatched to go on one of his less famous rides to uh, New York and then on to Philadelphia to bring the news to say, here's what we did. And so word just kind of spreads. Generally, it takes about four to six weeks for a ship to get to London. And so the Londoners learn about this and they're like, oh my God, like this entire shipment of of, of 46 tons of tea worth 96,000 pounds sterling has all been destroyed. Uh, The alarm spreads, but there's a bit of a delay to it. What's the reaction, both sort of ruling level and then public perception as well? Back in England, they're like, oh, Boston again, you know, and and some dismay that this valuable commodity owned by a private company, you know, that a lot of members of parliament were invested in and uh, and was monopoly company, right? Like the idea of this private property being destroyed, just it looks really bad for Boston. And Benjamin Franklin is actually over in London at the time. Uh, He's lobbying for a lot of the colonies and he's scapegoated about this. He is stripped of his post as deputy postmaster general. He's called out in the cockpit by Alexander Wedderburn and kind of criticized for his role in this. And he gets a little bit disgraced. And Franklin, as well as George Washington and a lot of other people in America uh, as well, were like, gosh, that's a lot of money. Maybe Boston ought to repay the East India Company for these damages. Maybe this was a step too far. Now, a year later, right, a lot of these people are like, oh, I realized that the Bostonians did what they had to do. But the immediate reaction is that may have been a step too far. And what everyone essentially has to do at this point is wait a few months to kind of see what the repercussions are going to be. And the repercussions are really one of the most important parts of the Boston Tea Party. Next time on the Boston Tea Party Igniting a Revolution, we'll be delving into those repercussions. There are protests in New York, protests in the Carolinas, New Jersey, other colonies join in shortly thereafter, within weeks and months. We'll investigate the significance of the protest. Dumped into the harbor was 46 tons of tea. When a ton of tea could buy you Paul Revere's house in the North End. And we'll hear just how important this was in the revolution to come. Well, when Boston held the line, of course, what it did was it mobilized and strengthened the boycotts across the other colonies. Many thanks to my guests for this episode. Benjamin Karp is Professor of History at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Centre, and the author of Defiance of the Patriots, The Boston Tea Party and the Making of America. Sarah Purcell is Professor of History at Grinnell College, Iowa, and the author of books that include Sealed with Blood, War, Sacrifice and Memory in Revolutionary America. This episode was written and researched by me, Eleanor Evans, and produced by Sam Leal Green. Additional fact checks were by Gordon O'Sullivan. Thanks for listening. 
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.